You're listening to Good Hustle, a podcast about bad teams. I'm Andrew Mackey. We have just gotten out of the Major League Baseball All-Star break. This is one of the worst times of the year for sports fans, because after the All-Star game, there are literally no professional sports on the next day. What are you going to watch? Do I actually have to socialize with people? Should I like the new Good Hustle Facebook page? Sorry, sorry, but yes, yes you should. Anyways, this week we're going back to the Diamond, and we're going to the Borough of Queens to say hello to a franchise and its fan base that is at the heart of Good Hustle. The New York Metropolitans, aka the Mets, stooped in the shadows of its famous older brother, the New York Yankees. The Mets have a loyal and passionate fan base. They live their team's hurt like a badge of honor. So Mets fan, this episode is for you. We're going back to 2009. We have a team flushed with cash that has every reason to be optimistic about the season ahead. The Mets have young talent, veteran talent, and an ace pitcher coming into his second year with the team. Instead of glory and a locker room celebration, You're going to see an unfair amount of injuries. Your best player experience one of the scariest moments in baseball and learn of a shirtless executive challenging your minor leaguers to fight him. So step right up and let's greet this team. This is episode six of Good Hustle, the 2009 New York Mets. Chapter one, meet the Mets. The Mets were one of baseball's first expansion teams. They were founded in 1962 to replace New York's departed National League teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. When the Dodgers moved to Brooklyn and the Giants moved to San Francisco, it left New York with just one team, and that was in the American League. So the National League was sort of looking at this as the original NFL LA market. We have to have another team in New York. So in 1962, they picked the Mets. In a symbolic reference to New York's earlier National League teams, the team would take as its primary color the blue of the Dodgers and the orange of the Giants. These colors are also on the city's flag, so it kind of blended well with the branding. The team picked Mets as its nickname. It was a natural choice. The corporate name for the team is actually the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club Incorporated. So Mets it is. It was also a shout out to another team that had played in New York back in the 1880s. The newspapers liked it because it was short, Mets, plain and simple. So in October 1961, the National League held an expansion draft to stock the rosters of the new Mets and an additional expansion team down in Houston with players from the other National League clubs. Rather than picking young talents with future potential and, you know, being good down the road, the Mets preferred to sign old stars of the Dodgers and Giants to appeal to New York fans' sense of nostalgia. They even hired old Yankees manager Casey Stengel to manage the team that first season, and he will turn 71 during that year. The Mets would take the field for the first time on April 11, 1962, against the St. Louis Cardinals. The first game, which was scheduled for the day before, had been canceled due to rain. The Mets would lose their debut game, and then go on to lose the next eight on their way to the modern-day losing record in baseball history the famous 40 and 120 mark. Their winning percentage was the fourth worst in Major League Baseball history, and the third worst of the modern era. 
only the 1899 Cleveland Spiders of Episode 3 fame would lose more games in a single season than these first-year Mets. It wouldn't be until 2003 that the record would even be threatened, which was by the 2003 Detroit Tigers of Episode 1. So, shout out to Alan Trammell. The ineptitude of the Mets during their first year is chronicled in the 1963 book Can't Anybody Here Play This Game, written by New York columnist Jimmy Breslin. The title of the book is supposedly from a, quote, Stangle maid expressing his frustration over the team. He would also be quoted as saying things like, Look at that guy, he can't hit, he can't run, and he can't throw. Of course, that's why they gave him to us. This was in reference to why some of the players were unprotected in the expansion draft. The other expansion team that year, the one in Houston, they finished 24 games better than the 1962 Mets. However, the Mets would become loved by New Yorkers for their losing ways. They would become famous in the city for the team's ineptitude. Despite all this losing and bad play, the Mets held the New York baseball attendance record for 29 years. That means they were popular. They broke the Yankees' 48 record by drawing nearly 2.7 million fans to Shea Stadium in 1970. They would go on to break that record five more times before the Yankees would take it back in 1999. Mets fans are the embodiment of the spirit of good hustle. They have every choice to jump ship. Right across town is the most historic franchise in American sports history. But they choose not to. They have chosen to be Mets fans. Their families have chosen to subject their sons and daughters to this life. Mets fans are loyal. God bless them. So we're moving ahead now to 2009. The 2009 Mets team was pretty good on paper. This was a team with the second highest payroll in Major League Baseball, just behind the Yankees. The Mets were coming off four consecutive winning seasons, although they had fallen one win short of the playoffs in each of the previous two years. They and their fans were ready to win now. This was to be the year. 2009. New stadium, new team, new Mets. Jose Reyes was a speedy, two-time All-Star shortstop who had led the National League in steals three of the past four seasons. The previous year, he had led the league in base hits, triples, and stolen bases. At first base for the Mets was a slugger. Carlos Delgado was reliable. He was good for about 30 home runs and over 100 RBI every season. In 2008, he finished ninth in MVP voting for the National League. Very underrated, but very consistent. Johan Santana was the Mets' ace pitcher. He had come to the team via a trade the year before and immediately agreed to a six-year, $137.5 million contract. He was a three-time All-Star and two-time Cy Young winner when he played for the Minnesota Twins. One of the most dominant pitchers in baseball, he won the Major League Pitching Triple Crown in 2006, which means he led the American and National Leagues in win, strikeouts, and earned run average. Leading both leagues in those statistics hadn't been done in 21 years, when Mets pitcher Doc Gooden pulled off the feat in 1985. At third base was the franchise, David Wright. He was the hope for the future and currently one of the best players in all of baseball. Wright was a five-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glove winner, which meant that he was the best third baseman defensively in the National League on top of being able to hit. 
He's just 27 when the 2009 season starts. He's about to enter into the prime of his career, in harmony with the other stars of the Mets. Big things are expected from Wright, who is the face of the team and one of the most popular players in all of baseball. Finally, we get to Carlos Beltran, one of the team's leaders. At this point in his career, he's a four-time All-Star and three-time Gold Glove winning outfielder. A quiet leader, but a great locker room presence. He's not known for being controversial. During the past few seasons, the Mets and the Philadelphia Phillies had gone back and forth on and off the field. In 2007, Philly shortstop Jimmy Rollins said that his team was the team to beat in the National League East. In 2008, it would become the Mets' turn. Quote, with Johan Santana now, I have no doubt that we're going to win our division, unquote, Carlos Beltran said. So this year to Jimmy Rollins, we are the team to beat. The Mets would not win the East in 2008. The Phillies did. And after the season, Philadelphia pitcher Cole Hamels referred to the Mets as choke artists, which brings us back to Beltron, who before the 2009 season would say about Cole Hamels, quote, The only thing that I know is he will be watched every time he faces us. Hopefully, we kill him, and then he'll have to deal with the situation, unquote. I know he's referring to being killed on the mound in terms of giving up a lot of runs, but being killed is still a pretty serious situation to have to deal with. So the Mets and the Phillies don't like each other. The Mets and the Yankees don't like each other. When teams are pretty good, they tend to build up rivalries because of how important the games become between them. With the Yankees and Mets, they play in opposite leagues, but they share the same city, so there you go. Their fans have to interact. The Mets had also just built a brand new ballpark. They were going to play in City Field for the first time in the 2009 season. It was replacing Shea Stadium, which had been the team's home for 44 years. To celebrate this change, the Mets, like most teams do when they have a new stadium, wore a commemorative patch. That itself is not the news. The problem is how generic and awful this patch was. It looks like the Domino's Pizza logo with Mets colors. It's at this point in the show that I'm going to confide in something to you all. Can I, can I do that? Is this a safe space for me to say something? Okay, good. I love uniform design. I, I love logo design. I, I love it all. I'll spend hours creating uniforms and logos on NBA 2K rather than just playing the game. But there's someone out there who does it better who loves it more than I do, and his name is Paul Lucas, and I have been a fan of Paul Lucas now for a really long time. Lucas writes for ESPN, as well as his own supplemental labor of love, UniWatch, which, as they say, is, quote, the obsessive study of athletics aesthetics, unquote, also known as the critique of sports uniforms and their logos. He has a motto for the site, for people who just get it. Lucas is the authority of such things, and here's what his article from January 9th, 2009 had to say about this Mets patch. Quote, Well, at least nobody can accuse them of having over-designed it. UniWatch thinks it's fair to say it takes a very special kind of tin ear, a truly rarefied strain of tone deafness, to put that patch on a big league baseball uniform. What shall we compare it to? An elementary school computer project? A certain fast food logo? Get the doormat, it's the Mets. Generic cliches like, my kid could do better, or how did that get approved, can't convey the scope of a design failure this monumental. Even team-specific barbs like, who was the designer, Mr. Met, 
don't capture the patch's epic shortcomings. So let's skip the metaphors and jokes and just proceed straight to the simple declarative truth. This is the worst sleeve patch in MLB history. And for those of you who don't know, Mr. Met is the mascot. He's a man with a giant baseball for a head. The Mets weren't the only New York team that season opening a new stadium, though. Crosstown Nemesis Yankees had also finished their new Yankee Stadium, complete with a patch. And Lucas had to say this about the Yankees patch, quote, As usual, the Mets don't need to look far to see how they should have handled this. All it takes is a quick glance towards the Bronx. That's the patch the Yankees will be wearing this season for their new stadium. Whether you love the Yanks or hate them, and UniWatch falls solidly in the later category, at least they know what a sleeve patch should look like, unquote. So there we go. Before the season has even started, people are criticizing the Mets' choice in uniform patches. So at least we know that people are not paying attention should this thing go south. And guess what? It's about to go south. So let's start the season. Chapter 2. Step right up and greet the Mets. The season began slow for New York, starting off with just 9 wins and 12 losses. But the Mets would turn it on in May. By May 10th, they are in first place in the National League East, a full game and a half ahead of the rival Phillies. They've just completed a sweep of the Pittsburgh Pirates, are in the midst of a 7-game winning streak. They would see it snap the next day against Atlanta, but would remain in first place for another 8 days, leading as much as two games before dropping back into second. Catastrophically, though, during this winning streak, the Mets would suffer two major blows. All-star shortstop Jose Reyes would suffer an injury to his right calf. He only makes seven more appearances at the plate before being placed on the disabled list. He would miss the rest of the season. The Mets also have to place the power-slugging first baseman Carlos Delgado on the 15-day disabled list during this time. He would play in just 26 games this season, but three days later, he has to have surgery on his hip, and he'll never play Major League Baseball again. Delgado retires two years later. Things get worse, though, during June. The team had tried to shore up their ballpen in the offseason by trading for pitcher J.J. Putz in a three-team, 12-player trade. On June 4th, he leaves the game to go and have surgery, to remove a bone spur from his elbow. While he's on a rehab assignment in August, doctors discover he's actually torn his ulnar collateral ligament. He doesn't play again in 2009. The team releases putts in the offseason. The next week, one of their starting pitchers, John Main, gets placed on the disabled list with shoulder weakness. Main wouldn't play again until September. The same day that the John Main news comes out, the Mets are playing crosstown rival the New York Yankees. The Mets are winning by one run with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. The Yankees, though, have two runners on base. A pop-up is hit to second baseman Luis Castillo. If he catches it, the Mets win the game. He doesn't. He drops the ball and allows both the tying and winning runs to score. The Mets lose. But that's only June 12th. We're not done yet with the month. The penultimate blow comes at the end. It was now Carlos Beltran's turn to get hurt. Beltran would play in just 67 games before going on the disabled list with a bone bruise on his right knee. He'd been playing hurt for most of the year, 
and during that time, the bruise apparently doubled in size. Ouch, Carlos. Like John Maine, he wouldn't return until September. But, despite all these injuries, the Mets were only trailing the division leader Philadelphia Phillies by one game. They were heading into an important three-game series that began on July 3rd with the Phillies. This is just before the All-Star game. These are crucial games to decide momentum heading into the second half of the season. And the Mets would score just three runs all weekend and get swept by the Phillies. They would fall behind first place by four games, and in the process, they'd be passed in the standing by the Florida Marlins. By July 7th, they'd fallen to fourth place, being passed by the Atlanta Braves. The Mets will never be closer than four games behind the rest of the season. To demonstrate just how Metsy things have gotten at this point, I want to tell you a story about the stadium. The Mets have had since 1980 a giant mechanical apple that rises up after the team hits a home run. It's a fan favorite. It even says home run right on the stand so you know what it's celebrating. In 2007, the Mets announced that the home run apple would be retired. In response, fans started a petition and a website called Save the Apple in order to preserve the prop. Due to popular demand, including 89% of surveyed fans saying they wanted it moved over from Shea Stadium to the new stadium, they constructed a new home run apple to be installed in the new stadium. The old home run apple was allowed to retire and is now placed outside the home plate entrance of City Field. So more apple history. The old home run apple at Shea was operated using a motor and pulley operated mechanism while the home run apple at City Field is powered by hydraulics and is operated from the control room, which requires a key to be turned and a button to be pressed to activate it. It's just like a nuclear missile launch. Despite the improved engineering on the new state-of-the-art home run apple, it, like much of the Mets this season, would fail to perform. On July 12th, Mets player Fernando Tatis hit a home run against the Reds. The apple did not rise. Fans booed and chanted, we want Apple, for two and a half minutes until the Apple was finally raised. There are 40,000 people in the stadium booing the home run Apple at this point in the year. Even the Apple is playing hurt. However, it did tough it out and would finish the season. Good Apple. On July 22nd, though, is where things start to get really weird. The New York Daily News reports that while visiting the Mets AA farm team in Binghamton, New York, the Mets vice president for player development, Tony Bernazard, took off his shirt and challenged minor league players to fight him during a locker room rant. Just the day earlier, back at City Field, he had berated an assistant in front of scouts and the fans because someone else had taken his seat during the game. Five days later, on July 27th, Bernazard is fired. The general manager, though, decides now is the time to pour gasoline on the fire. Omar Minaya, at the press conference announcing Bernazard's dismissal, implies that the reporter from the Daily News was lobbying for a player development position with the team, saying that his coverage of the situation was biased because he would like to be in the front office. The next day, Manaya apologizes because Jeff Wilpon, the chief operating officer and son of the owner, makes him. 
So here we are during the Mets season. The home run apple isn't cooperating. Executives are challenging minor leaguers to fight. The general manager is implying that the media is biased against them. Your best players are dropping like flies. During June and July, the team would only win 21 games. They would lose 32. The preseason hype, sitting in first place back in May, going 19-9 and during the month, seems like so long ago. And as so many of you know, baseball is a really long season, and things can still get worse. And for this team, they do. Chapter 3. Bring your kitties, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life. August 15th, 2009 would be a scary day for Mets fans. By this point in the season, the team is 12 games behind the Phillies for first place. The Mets were facing the San Francisco Giants and starting pitcher Matt Cain. Cain had been dominant as he had been efficient. Only 7 of his previous 39 pitches were balls. He bulldozed the Mets with an array of fastballs, curves, and sliders. Cornerstone third baseman and the team's lone surviving all-star hitter, David Wright, swung and missed at Kane's first fastball. He would fall off his next two pitches, and then came the fourth. Quote, all of a sudden, bam, unquote, Mets outfielder Jeff Francoeur would say. Quote, it just happened so quick, unquote. The New York Times in an article about the game reported that, quote, David Wright lay on his stomach, the face in the dirt, his arms spread in front of him were still. So were his legs. The latest Mets injury was by far the scariest. An errant 93-mile-an-hour fastball from Matt Kane drilled right on the helmet by the ear flap and dropped him to the ground in one terrifyingly quick motion, unquote. Wright would spend the next two weeks on the disabled list. The Mets would lose another five games on the Phillies. By August 29th, they're 17 and a half games back. During that stretch, they would make history. For just the second time ever in baseball, a game would end on an unassisted triple play. That means that one player would get all three outs on a single play. No throwing, no one else involved. Trailing 9-7 in the bottom of the ninth against who else but the Phillies, the Mets had runners on first and second with nobody out when outfielder Jeff Francoeur lined to Philadelphia second baseman Eric Bruntlett. Bruntlett caught the ball, making Francoeur out, number one. He then put his foot on second base, forcing the runner and making out number two. Bruntlett then tagged Daniel Murphy, who had been running on hearing the bat crack, making out number three. This is only the 15th unassisted triple play in Major League Baseball history, and as of 2018, it is the last time it has happened. Also during that stretch, the Mets would lose their ace pitcher, Johan Santana, to elbow surgery, and now he too was done for the year. So out of the core players, every one of them are done for the year, except for Wright, who is battling back from a concussion, and Beltron, who is coming back with a bone bruise. The problems weren't just on the field, though. On August 28th, Aaron Averland author of Too Good to Be True, a book about jailed hedge fund manager Bernie Madoff, said that the Mets owner, Fred Wilpon, was going to be forced to sell the team soon. 
Wilpon and his family had lost an estimated $700 million as a result of Madoff's fraudulent scheme. The Mets denied the claim that was made in the book, but why not add some more drama to the season? August was over. The Mets had begun September 17 and a half games behind the Phillies. The team had had enough. They were playing with spare parts and with broken stars. During September, they would only win eight games. It would be the worst month on the field for the team. They finished 2009 a total of 23 games behind the rival Phillies. They were nowhere near the playoff race. However, Mets fans are loyal, and they finished 7th in attendance, showing the dedication of these people to misery. Tony Bernazar, the guy who took off his shirt and threatened to fight minor leaguers, would do an interview in 2010 where he said that the Mets blamed him for the awful season. Quote, This is the thing. I was blamed for everything that happened to the Mets last year, unquote. Bernazal told this in a Q&A posted on FoxSports.com. He would go on to say, Why do people choose to be so naive that one person was responsible for everything that happened to the Mets? As for the incident on the bus, he blamed the media and the Mets for blowing it all out of proportion. Quote, I'm telling you, I didn't do anything wrong, unquote. Since the book Too Good to Be True was released in August of 2009, Mets owner Fred Wilpon has said that his losses were substantially less than the $700 million that was initially reported. Later, it would be reported that Wilpon and his family actually made about $300 million with Bernie Madoff. As a result, in December 2010, Wilpon was named in a lawsuit filed by the trustee of the Madoff Trust on behalf of the victims of the scandal. On March 19, 2012, Wilpon agreed to settle the lawsuit for $162 million. He still owns a 52% majority of the New York Mets. David Wright would struggle after his concussion, but he eventually recovered and would make the All-Star team in 2010, 2012, and 2013. He still plays for the Mets, but in 2015 he would be diagnosed with spinal stenosis and has spent much of the past three seasons on the disabled list, missing 2017 completely. He is the Mets' all-time leader in all-star appearances, hits, runs scored, runs batted in, total bases, walks, and various other statistics. Johan Santana would throw the first no-hitter in New York Mets history in 2012. He'd injure his shoulder for a second time, which is really bad for a pitcher in early 2013. He never plays big league baseball again. Santana would never win a Cy Young with the Mets. Though he's not officially retired, he would be elected to the Minnesota Twins Hall of Fame in 2018. He's still trying to play baseball again, whether it be in the major leagues or in his home country of Venezuela. Carlos Beltran would play with the Mets through 2011, before winning his first World Series with the Astros in 2017. He mentored a young team to the next level, and finally got himself a championship. He helped bridge gaps in locker rooms and communities between Latino and white players. Beltran was a big reason that teams now have a translator available for Spanish-speaking players. Just last year, he raised $1.3 million to help those affected by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. He's so respected that after his playing career, just months after, he was considered for a major league managerial job, including the New York Yankees. That's something that's unheard of in baseball. Beltran is one of the good guys. The Philadelphia Phillies finished 93-69 and 69 on the season. That was good enough for first place in the National League East. 
they would defeat the Colorado Rockies in the Divisional Series and then beat the LA Dodgers in the National League Championship Series. The Phillies were back to defend their World Series crown. They'd lose, though, in six games to the New York Yankees. Have a season you'd like featured on Good Hustle? Visit the show at listentogoodhustle.com or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Mackey and on Instagram at Hello Mackey. That's spelled M-A-C-K-E-Y. Please remember to like our new Facebook page. Good Hustle is written, edited, and hosted by Andrew Mackey. Information about this season was gathered with Deadspin, Baseball Reference, The New York Times, The New York Daily News, and UniWatch. Special thanks to Paul Lucas for having one of the single greatest web pages in all of the internet. We'll see you next time.